episode 301 of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by Learn the Finer Points. Use the link below to save 10% off their ground school app. With high-resolution, coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, ECOTOPS, and StormTracks, Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Hey friends, my name is Daniel Watchering. I am a pilot of vintage airplanes and a career flight instructor. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Currently sitting in Lunkin, we are uh, on a busy day today. We're fighting a bunch of weather. You'd really think it would be spring or summertime or even like early fall with the thunderstorms we just had to go around, but no, it is the end of February, so I'm not sure what happened in winter. But we are going up to the northeast, so I'm sure we'll find some cold up there. But Aviation, today's episode is with Daniel Wotring. Daniel is a Warbird pilot. He's also a CFI, and he's done some pretty cool stuff in his aviation world. So it's cool to share stories of people who aren't just airline pilots, and you get to see what fun in aviation can be like outside of that career. So Aviation, I hope you like this episode. If you do, please leave us a review. I'm on Spotify now, and I have 787 reviews. Shout out to the 787. So I actually don't know if I want any more reviews, but we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> B788, please give me 788, but make sure it's five star. Aviation, hope you're having a great day. And without any further ado, here's Daniel. Daniel, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, I'm excited. Like we talked about before, literally, you probably didn't even know what this podcast was. I literally had saw a tag coming from you and I was like, hey, cool. I mean, just uh, click the first person I see and message you want to do a podcast and like two days or a week later, here we are. So uh, I appreciate you saying yes and uh, being so so quick about it. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. I don't even remember who it was. I'm going to I'm gonna harass one, you know, <laughs> go through that list and harass my friend that did it. But uh, like, I'm glad don't to be ever here. do that again. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is great. Yeah, cool, man. Well, hey, the first question I ask everyone is why aviation? What was about aviation that wanted you to initially start this this great career or great, however you want to say it? <laughs> There's a few touch points in my history that, uh, or my childhood that got me there. Um, you know, the first thing is, is I was probably like three years old and we had to go on a, a trip to go visit my uncle in Texas. And we went on an airline trip. Um at the somewhere in that flight, I'm not sure exactly where it was, but I do remember this. The uh, airline pilots invited me up in the cockpit. And my dad likes to say that my son went in the cockpit and they must have changed out the kid because he came out. It was a completely different kid. And ever since then, it was every my eyes were in the skies and just absolutely fascinated with everything aviation. You know, of course, um, this movie called Top Gun came out. And I was pretty young and impressionable at the time. And I thought that was one of the coolest things in the world. And then, uh, you know, like many kids. And then um, I think it was the commemorative Air Force. It might have been the EAA. I'm not sure exactly who it was. But they came through one of the towns I lived in as a kid. And they brought out a B-17. And we went out. Uh, My mom took me out to go look at the airplane. And I remember climbing through the airplane just thinking, this is amazingly cool. I, I just want to 
do this someday. And it's just been downhill since, you know, there's a TV show out there that we got in reruns uh, where I lived was Black Sheep Squadron. And so, you know, I've got Corsairs on everything I own now because of that show. <laughs> so just, it, it's just kind of that, that whole thing. I just got just fascinated by aviation. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and then for a long time, I was living in the middle of nowhere, uh, no touch points on aviation. It was just something that, uh, that really drew me. And it's actually the thing that got me through school. Cause I hated school and my parents used to use, Hey, if you want to be a pilot someday, then you got to be good at school. It, I listened to them, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't have, cause you really don't need to be. No. <laughs> the best kept secret. You do not have to be smart, that smart, or at least book smart or school smart to, to be a pilot. So <laughs> man, I, I didn't have to do trig and calculus in high school. You know, my parents lied to me. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, that's one of the biggest misconceptions I even hear today. It's like, you talk to somebody, you know, a pilot, someone's like, well, I don't want to do that kind of math or I want to do that. It's like, dude, there's not really math anymore. <laughs> exactly. like, we, got, we got a VNAV button and it does it all for us. It's amazing. <laughs> well, exactly. these we do. I don't know about your old planes. They probably don't have VNAV unless you got an old car. Uh, anyway. uh, you just kind of look outside and you point the airplane towards yeah. it and you hope the best. <laughs> all right. So uh, you're coming from this kid, you know, three years old on an airline flight. You got swapped out, maybe someone else, but, uh, you have this love of aviation. You kind of have this idea that this is what you want to do. How does someone go from a, a three-year-old, a young kid, or even growing up into making this into kind of a reality? So kind of a funny thing. I moved back and forth between California and southwestern New Mexico most of my childhood. Um, when I was in Southern California, there was an Air Force base nearby, and I knew a few people that their dads were, uh, were pilots. But when I was in New Mexico, there was really no touch points on it. And um, I was just absolutely fascinated. So I go to the library, I go anywhere and find anything I could on aviation. A um, couple of guys that were in that town, they had airplanes. Uh, none of them were currently flying. And I look back and I know now none of them did an annual on the airplane. And most of them probably didn't even have a license. Uh, it just is what it is. Uh, but they gave me all their books. I, I studied anything and anything I get my hands on. Um, and it was just so unaccessible. I, I, you know, being a kid, you know, working on ranches before and after school and doing all that kind of stuff. It was just, it was, it was a dream. Uh, I had an opportunity to move back to California, um, in my late teens, um, and help out my grandmother. She was in, in Orange County. California. And I thought, Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to get out of this. I would love, I loved working on the ranches. I loved that kind of lifestyle, but you could see that it's going to be a hard life. And, um, you know, I, I jokingly say there was two things I wanted to be when I was a kid. One was a cowboy, one was a uh, pilot. And I figured out by 16, that cowboy was a little bit harder than I wanted to make my life out to. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I came out here, uh, to Southern California and Started working my way at it, and uh, my parents came out too, and my dad didn't want me to learn how to fly. So, um, I, yeah, it was more my, – my uncle um, was a crew chief in Vietnam and on a helicopter, and he didn't make it home. So there, there was good reason for it. Um, in fact, I was told later on when I did pursue flying, I was told no helicopters – and uh, so I, I just break that rule in silence. I don't let my parents know that <laughs> I'm flying helicopters around. 
Yeah, yeah right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I should probably not say it. You should have yeah. said that already. Uh, yeah. So, so I took a, a job at a summer camp up in Northern California because I figured, you know, I moved 600 miles away from my parents to learn how to fly. They they came out partly because of the economic situation in New Mexico. They, they needed to pursue uh, better economics, and my grandmother just needed help. And uh, so I took a job up in Northern California outside of Santa Rosa. And I figured, you know, they're not going to follow me up here. And uh, it was a summer camp that I worked at. And I took all my money from working at the summer camp and went down to the airport. And my parents finally went, okay, there's no stopping you. Now, if you're going to, at least if you're going to do this, you should probably be close to home. Um, so partly, I think they wanted to keep an eye on me. So I went back to Southern California. I rolled in a, in a small um, uh, community college, Cypress College. They have a great aviation program. And I started taking all my ground school classes there, all that kind of stuff. Um, and got a job at Fullerton Airport Pump and Gas, started spending all my money at a flying club over in Long Beach, learning how to fly. And uh, funny thing is, years later, I ended up teaching at Cypress College. Uh, went from a student to not that many years later, I was actually one of their adjunct professors. That's funny. So, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how it works out. As yeah, a, it is. As someone that, not necessarily your parents were like, were really anti you doing this. Right. But as someone who kind of felt like they needed to, to go essentially behind their back or to kind of do it on your own and not let them know, there's probably multiple people that are, are going through a similar situation like that. Would you recommend going down the way you did? Or you think it's more of just like having a conversation with them and be like, Hey, this is what I really want to do. And I want to prove to you, like, what do I need to do to prove to you? That this is what I want you to do. What I want to do. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, um, I would never encourage somebody to go behind somebody's back to do anything, but at the same time, if it's your passion, if you really want to do something, and I just knew, I knew if I was sitting in my rocking chair at 90 years old, looking back and I didn't try this, I was going to regret it. So for me, it was something I had to do. And it was something that I thought was impossible to do. In fact, I had a lot of family members saying that you're never going to do that. That's only for rich kids. It's, uh, you know, you're not smart enough for that, those kind of things. And maybe that also helped it a little bit that I was like, well, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. I'm going to do this. And I just knew there was nothing else in life that I wanted to do. Had I not had aviation, I don't know what I'd be. I mean, aviation has been a serious gift to me. It could be a cowboy. could be on Yellowstone. I could be, I could be, you know, as my wife watches, you know, she watched that with me and she's like, you know, that's very similar to a lot of the stories you have from growing up uh, where you were at. I'm like, it's same stuff, different area, maybe not to the same extent, but uh, same attitudes. So what's, uh, I'm trying to think off my head. I've been to a lot of places in New Mexico, but I don't think I've ever been to Southwest New Mexico. What What's around Southwest New Mexico? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, Garmin pilot, see if I can even recognize any airports in that area. Because yeah. I don't think I've ever been, I've been to a ton of airports, but never. Yeah. Ever. It's, um, so best way I could say this, I was flying a few airplanes back in formation across the country with two Texas boys. And I, I lived in West Texas for a short period of time too. Um, and there, everybody's telling me, you know, tech, you're either Texan or you're not. And uh, they're telling me how, you know, they grew up in the middle of nowhere. And there we fly over one guy's place. And says, yeah, look at this. There's nothing there. We go over the other guy's place. Yeah, look at this. There's nothing there. We go over my place. And he goes, they both go, you win. So um, there was, uh, it was cool, though. We, uh, yeah. the, Lord's the economics, Lordsburg's uh, by the, by air is probably 20, 
25, 30 miles uh, northeast of us. So there's a little dot on the map called Animus, which is the southwest of, of Lordsburg, middle of nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Um, it was great, though. I mean, the best way you could grow up, um, from the time I was eight years old, I was, you know, I started learning how to drive. I had a old beat-up uh, Chevy station wagon my dad got that was uh, was wrecked, but it was drivable. That was my toy to learn how to drive with. My buddies and I, later on, we all had, you know, 1970s, early 1980s, uh, full-size cars, and we'd race them all the time. Um, I had dirt bikes. I was shooting since the age of eight or nine. Um, my uncle put me to work driving his bulldozer about 12 years old because I borrowed it to make a jump for my motorcycle. And, uh, my punishment was to, to pay off the fuel I burned. I mean, it was just, it, I couldn't imagine having a different childhood when I moved to California. It was a culture shock. Um, and I could go into lots of stories on that, but uh, I had to learn that, um, just because somebody threatens you doesn't mean that you have to, um, you don't have to retaliate. <laughs> so, what is it, uh, what's it in Yellowstone? Take them to the bus stop or the train stop, the train station. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. I was just used to when somebody made a threat to you, they actually meant it. And, um, it, it, it was just, it's just a completely different, different way of life. I mean, I thank God we didn't have uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube back then. We, we'd be all, we'd all be in a lot of trouble now. So. So the kids back home, uh, your friends from Southwest New Mexico, when they see that you're a pilot now, are they just like, what the heck? How'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, sev- several years ago, I was bringing an airplane across uh, across the country, and I happened to go buzzing by there, and I got a, several text messages from friends going, was that you? Was that you? I'm like, I cannot, neither can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay, in that case, it was me. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome uh talk a little bit about uh finding a flight school as someone who has pretty much just you know book knowledge read books on it uh finding a place to go to school uh with really no one else out there to, to help you out what, what did you use as resources and how did you even pick a place to go so in that respect i was fairly lucky um my dad um uh, got to know a guy years earlier that we're still friends with him to this day that he started up a flight school years and years and years before um, so this guy, Dominic to me was a sky God. Cause all I heard was, you know, Dominic this or Dominic that, um, when I got serious about learning how to fly, my dad finally, uh, uh, had me sit down with him and he gave me little inputs. Um, my dad actually said, go out and interview several flight schools and find somebody. And, um, yeah, it was great. You know, I, my, my first instructor up in Santa Rosa was recommended to me. Um, but then when I came down to Southern California, I actually went and uh, interviewed several different flight instructors, just trying to find somebody who, who I meshed with. Um, so, and more importantly, somebody who had a plan. Um, I, I really like the idea of having a plan. And so many times you go to a flight school and they go, well, you know, we're going to go up and maybe we'll do this. And it, the instructors don't seem to have a plan. Even part 141 schools, they have a plan, but it's not necessarily flexible. Um, so I ended up finding this great instructor and to this day, a guy's name is Gary Collins. I've lost touch with him uh, over the years, but phenomenal flight instructor. He was absolutely amazing. Uh, he was on his way to go and be a corporate pilot. Last I heard he's out flying golf streams around the, around the world. Um, and he had, he had his own little Gary's flight training handbook and, you know, it had all the lessons spelled out and 
the time that it should take and a little information on where to find stuff. So it really worked out great. And I can't, you know, I've told him in the past, in fact, years ago, I linked up with him and he sent me a copy of, of that digitally so I could steal from it to, to grow from it on, on my stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got with him and I couldn't afford anything. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I was, I tell people I worked 40 hours a week for one hour flight uh, flying for a decade, you know, just constantly building my way through it. And Gary worked with me as far as, you know, he knew that I could fly maybe once every other week. So he gave me homework to do. Um, he get, and then being at a flight school or working at, working out of flight school to pump and gas, it was really helpful that I could watch other students going through the same stuff I was going through. Um, going to a community college and their aviation program was really helpful because I had, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was building up a network of people that I could work off of. Um, it's fun to this day. I still have those connections. We still help each other get jobs. Um, yeah. The, the network you build as a pilot, I think is, you, you know, this, like you never know who you're going to be standing next to, who they may introduce you to in the future. You know, your student could be your captain of the next job. And so, um, that was, was immensely helpful. I kind of went off the rails after, after my private pilot training, cause I got in working at a maintenance shop as an apprentice mechanic, cause I wanted to learn more about air, airplanes. And I started working on my instrument rating with one of the mechanics there. And my instrument rating took me like three years. It just was absolutely ridiculous. And part of that was me. I did not like being under the hood. I, I learned how to fly because I wanted to go out and see the world, not because I want to look at the instrument panel and keep in mind of those days, like we didn't have uh, GPSs. So I think my first 20 hours of, of instrument training was just trying to figure out where the heck I was. Um, and usually that was where I was like 10 minutes ago. Um, so <laughs> it, starting with airplanes, like Mexico right now, this isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> I got a story on that one later, you know, also, but, uh, you know, but, you know, and some of it was, you know, you're using one of my airplanes I was using at the time was, um, single radio, non-flip flops. So you'd be tuning back and forth to get, uh, fixes. I look back now and I'm like, I'm really glad I went through all that stuff. Um, but the private pilot training was super fun. The instrument rating was just drudgery. I just hated it. Now when I teach people, uh, the rare time that I'll teach somebody an instrument rating these days, I'm like, okay, let's make this fun. Let's make this exciting. Let's make this applicable, not just, you know. <laughs> and by the way, when you get out there in the real world, it's way easier than in training. So you're like, trust me on this. One day it's all going to click. It's not going to make any sense until that day, but you just got to keep banging your head against the wall until you eventually break a hole or put a hole in the wall and get through. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, going back to your private a little bit, you, you mentioned how you weren't very consistent with your flying. Um, it was probably once every other week, once every week. How did you maintain or how did you were able to kind of retain the knowledge, the skills? A lot of times you take a week off, it seems like you you forgot how to fly an airplane. There's one time back when I did my private pilot in 2010 or whatever it was. I had a week off, came back, and I felt like I couldn't fly anymore. And I was like, I'm done. I'm, I can't be a pilot. I'm terrible. <laughs> how did you go through that every single kind of week and, and overcome those, those barriers and, and kind of still be motivated? This is, um, I think, where I really got a good um, grasp of making sure you get a good debrief on a flight and taking really good notes. And comparing what you thought you did to what you did and correcting that to what, what, um, 
what you need to do the next time. And then I would write everything down. I would say, okay, we're going to go into slow flight. Okay, Cessna 152 that I was flying at the time. Okay, first step is carpete on, 2,000 RPM, slow it to this speed, bring flaps 10, flaps full, power back up to about this. And I would sit there in a chair and just literally chair fly as many times as I could until it was just automatic. So then I can just make make the fixes for the for developing the skill set. And it's funny because... Today, I do the same thing. If I'm out there flying, um, I went up in a, I hadn't flown a Grumman Wildcat in forever, and I grabbed my notes real quick, and I'm like, okay, so, and I just visualized myself in that spot and went, okay, this is what I have to do. Here's the kill me items on this airplane. Here's, you know, here's how we perform. Uh, so that was a big thing. You know, I, I've, had, I've worked with a lot of students that didn't have the budget. And that was one of the big things is we're going to do really good briefings. We're going to do a good flight. We're going to do a really detailed debriefing. We're going to make sure you have the notes and you part of your homework is to go practice this. And today with a flight simulator, you know, if somebody invests one lesson's worth on Microsoft flight simulator and, and some tools for that, you can really overcome a lot. Um, but that, that was, that was a big item on how I did it. I'm trying to think there's a few other things that I did, but it was part of it was I was eat, drink, sleep, living this stuff. Even though I couldn't fly it all the time, my mind was always on it. I would be driving to work in the morning, making radio calls on, you know, um, on a, on a flight that I was imagining in my head and, you know, you know, how do, okay, what do I got to do? Okay. I'm, I'm at the flying club, uh, ramp and, Okay, I got to get ATIS and then uh, clearance deliveries on here. This is what I'm going to say. This is ground control. This is tower. I'm going to go over to SoCal approach. And I would just visualize those things and, and read them on out um, and to the point where it just became normal. Um, yeah, was, I think those are the, the big, big things. That you ever, a lot. Did you ever have any big discouragements in your training at all? Something that was like, uh, I'm not, other than you not liking instrument, was there anything that was just like, I'm done. I'm going to go back and be a cowboy. That's my life. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I saw the bill, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it really wasn't that bad. When I started training, like I look back now at what we were paying, it was, it was nothing. But for me, that was, uh, oh man, it was huge money. Um, but there was a couple of things. One of them was my first solo flight. And I'd like to tell you, I've never bent a piece of metal in an airplane, but I didn't make it very far. And uh, we went from having a club house at one spot and moved into this really big uh, area over on the other side of the field. It was the end of the taxiway. And they were supposed to clear out the taxiway lights at the end. They were, they were, supposed, to, they were supposed to be below ground. I was briefed that that's where they were. I took off and I flew the airplane around um, from the old club and I was going to recover it to the new club I'd never been to. And... It was the, it was late in the day. The sun was setting dirty old dusty airplane. Um, we all remember our first solo flight. That's the part I really love about this. I've got the picture here, but anyway, um, the flight itself was amazing. I get off the runway at Long Beach airport, one of the busiest airports in the world at the time, taxi on over the ramp. I taxi right down the center of the taxiway into the parking area. And I hear, bang and i look down and i see nothing but what looked like purple glass going by the side of the airplane and i taxi right my taxi right into the uh the taxi light and uh you know so i went from having this super huge high to just absolutely feel like the worst guy in the whole wide world 
Now, this was in a time before they mandated that you had to do engine teardowns for a prop strike. So there was that. There was a the guy dressed out the prop, but I thought, you know what? If I have to pay for this, I can never learn how to fly. I'm done. Um, the flying club was super cool about it. Everybody was super cool about it. You know, I think they actually felt bad because they realized that, you know, they shouldn't have had me doing what I was doing. Um, it first, was a, very first solo. First solo. Uh, it was a good reminder, a slap in the face that you can go oh, from everything's great to everything's horrible all at one time. So. Way to like tack on more stuff for first solo. It's like not only are we not going to have you on the pattern in your local airport that you're comfortable with, we're going to send you to Long Beach, send you to go do some weird tasks that is probably stress. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So I mean, I was learning how to fly out of Long Beach. There, we just happened to move from oh, one spot on the okay. airport to the other. So at least that part was good. But uh, yeah, yeah it was, so I have two solo pictures. Uh, one of them is, you know, in front of the airplane looking all cool. And I just remember that feeling when they're taking that Polaroid picture of like, I just have to put a smile on my face. I have to act like this is really a great day. And I am just ready to break down in tears on the inside. And then there's a picture of the airplane over top of the taxiway light with my instructor and I looking at it. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you though, Hindsight 2020, it was a great thing to start off, especially this young cocky kid that grew up um, in an environment that uh, was dangerous, um, that I might have had a little bit of that cowboy attitude to know, hey, you know what, stuff can go wrong really quickly and you better pay attention. So um, on one end, it was horrific. On the other end, it was a great thing. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Other than that, I was so gung ho and so motivated about my training. I'd go to the point where I drive to the airport that I was going to do a cross country to, so I can get an idea of where the landmarks were, which probably was cheating. Um, but again, yeah, no GPS, you know, none of that stuff. Um, you know, it, it's to this day, um, I am super glad that I learned how to fly when I did and I didn't push it back. Um, partly because of the updating technology, um, I, I had to learn those old school skills that are really great in the airplanes I'm flying now, you know, to go out on a cross country and, um, in an airplane and, uh, have a canopy that will suck out charts. You know, you tend to get really good at pre-flight planning and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I don't know. It was just, uh, that the, the private wasn't bad. The, the instrument rating I wanted to give up every day. That, what that um one, that one i hated yeah instrument instrument's tough right i mean we kind of brief touched on it a little bit it's more of like a, a whole different language you got to figure it out you just learn how to fly you're excited and then they're like all right get in the books forget everything you did if you look outside i'm gonna smack you in the face it's like just look down the whole time so uh and your body's just kind of like you think you're you think you're going straight but you really turn it right and it's just all jacked up <laughs> yeah. you know i ended up going back i ended up finishing up my instrument rating with with gary collins the guy that i did my my private with um and i didn't finish my i didn't go through my instrument rating with gary because he was he just got picked up by flight safety to be a golf stream instructor Oh, so cool. I kind of had to wait till he had a spot. And when I finished up, it was one of those, my first uh, real, you know, slap in the face of being pick as, a, as an instructor is extremely important. Um, Cause I went from a guy who wasn't really into aviation. He was, he, he, you know, he was an ATP and an ANP and an IA and he did all this stuff, but he was completely burnt out. Um, and I learned a lot of great things from him, but you know, Gary actually pulled me across the line and actually made it fun. Um, 
So yeah, except for, you know, those days we're out driving along, go, Oh yeah. Hey, make a, you know, give me a holding pattern at a thousand feet over Long Beach Harbor and be like, Hey, yeah, you're missing out. There's a playboy boat sitting underneath the wing. You know, <laughs> yeah. Right. Gary. Thanks a lot. You know, you're just, you're just killing me right here. <laughs> That's really so, funny. Uh, yeah, actually, oh, keep on. Oh, I actually finished my instrument rating partly because I got an opportunity to fly, um, uh, Ford trimotor or the, the last model of a Ford trimotor. And the guy, the guy basically gave me a carrot on the stick. He's like, you get your instrument rating done. Um, we'll get your commercial knocked out or you'll, we'll, I'll point you in the direction to get your commercial knocked out. And you'll be flying right seat in this airplane. And I'm like, well, I guess that's pretty motivating. I, I'll get it done now. So yeah. was, uh, was your goal ever airlines or was it all just kind of fly? What was fun? If I was smart, it would have been airlines, but, um, <laughs> of course I take that back because at the time I applied to the airline several times. I just had really bad timing. Um, no, I, I wanted to either be a fighter pilot of the military or I wanted to fly vintage airplanes and the doors kept closing in my face on the military side. And it's funny cause I now do a lot of work, uh, with the air force and I do a lot of work with, uh, with a lot of military folks. I didn't know the pathway in and I didn't have those tools available. Um, and I didn't know anybody who knew somebody, you know, so that's through it's that pathway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and through that exploration, I ended up finding the way, but I was too old to do it. Um, which was good because I helped a lot of other people who wanted to do it that were behind me and pointed them in the direction, hey, talk to this person. They've got the information. Here's here's what you do. Uh, so I get to live vicariously through them. But the vintage and, air, and antique airplanes started opening up more and more. Um, it was great because I was working as a mechanic in a shop, uh, apprentice mechanic. I have strategically avoided my A&P for 25 years now. Um, but uh, I spent enough time on it. Uh, I, learned, I learned the maintenance side because I want to learn airplanes more. That opened up getting into the vintage airplanes and antique airplanes and Warbird type airplanes. And uh, so that just kind of... That those doors just kept opening and opening. I found out really quick. It's a real hard pathway to find somebody to uh, to teach you. Later on, you know, skipping way ahead when I got my CFI, um, I found that that was a really great spot to spend my my time in. Was teaching people the skills that was so hard for me to get. Um, but yeah, it was just those were my two passion points. Um, when I was learning how to fly, um, to be a to be an airline pilot. There were so many guys in the flight school that had 45, 5,500 hours that were CFIs that could not get an airline job because there just weren't jobs for it. Um, I called SkyWest Airlines when I had um, 1,500 hours, and they basically said, hey, call us back when you have 4,500 hours. And my response back was, would you like me to solo the space shuttle and get three lunar landings? And, and the lady goes, what do you mean? I said, because the forty five. Yeah, I did because I'm a smart Alec. Uh, <laughs> I said, you know, me getting forty five hundred hours and coming back, and at the time you made less than working at McDonald's, and you had a two year payback program on that at the time. You know, if you got you got an airline job and you didn't stay two years, you had to pay back your your training expenses. Um, oh yeah, it was, it was completely different times. Um, I just looked at it like, there's no way I want to do that. Like, I'm going to, it just wasn't my thing. 
Um, I ended up falling in love with flight instruction. I did every other job around the airport up to that point. Uh, I worked for every FBO at Fullerton Airport at one point or another. Uh, <laughs> and multiple jobs. I'd go work at this place up to this point, go over to that place because I just needed to keep on paying for uh, for flying. Um, I was like an addict, but uh, I love it's it. just, yeah. What, um, oh, I had a question. I just lost it. Oh, uh, as someone that's a CFI now, um, someone that's looking up at the generation that's coming up and the outlook on their career is completely different than what it looked like when you were starting to fly, right? Like everything that you said that just happened isn't happening anymore. All right, let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. As a pilot, you rely on precision planning, trusted resources, and experience each day. And that's just what RAA brings to financial planning. You see, they're uniquely positioned to serve the airline community because RAA was created by pilots to serve pilots, which is why they've earned the trust of and served thousands in aviation industry for more than three decades. But more importantly, RAA's airline specialized advisors understand the unique set of needs, challenges, and goals associated with your career, including those factors that can affect your financial life and security. And that's why it's important to work with the right financial partner. Because whether you're just entering the airline industry or nearing your final flight, the team at RAA is here to support your journey from takeoff to touchdown. Learn more about the benefit of working with an RAA airline specialized advisor today at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's raa.com slash pilot to pilot. Now back to today's episode. Do you think that they even kind of understand or kind of see how different it is even probably been what 10 years not even since these changes are happening do you think that's all forgotten in their eyes and they think it's all going to be perfect or do they understand this industry is truly a roller coaster i i would like them to understand um but i don't think so i don't think anybody can really truly understand um the changes we've went from pilots being there's a ton of them out there we can we can treat them like trash we can pay them nothing and they're going to come do this because they want to go up to the majors and um to now we're being treated like human beings um we're being treated like you know like we're a valuable asset and you know when i was running an fbo before before i became a, a cfi it was a whole other subject when it came to CFIs, because I had a guy that wasn't, or a guy or gal that wasn't doing super good, and you try to work him through, try to help him, but you didn't have to help him too far, because I had a drawer full of CFI applications with, you know, 100 people that were starving for a job. Now it's the complete opposite. Now now we're hiring anybody and anybody. Uh, yeah. You got a CFI? Come on, you got a job. Yeah. Wait, you have a pulse? You're willing yeah. to do this? Hey, come on out. And, you and, uh, come on in. Let's go. Yeah. But my warning to all of everybody is that this is one of the most fickle in- industries that you'll ever be in. It's super hot on stuff, and then it goes opposite, hardcore. Um, I've been through about three times where – where the industry just fell flat on its face. And it's usually the first one to fall and the last one to get back up when the economy goes bad. So, you know, I remember 9-11 obviously was the worst. I was, we were, were, uh, I was a young kid working on the field and I was making 25 bucks an hour as an apprentice mechanic. I thought I was just living it. And mind you, yeah. And mind you at the time I could rent a 172 for like 45 bucks an hour. So I was like, I was living large yeah. And we went one day from having more work than I knew what to do with to we were stuck on the ground there for like three months. 
with nothing to do. Um, you know, obviously I'm not taking away from the tragedy of anything that happened, but to relate it back to the pilot life, uh, or the aviation life, like I look at it a lot, like I did as a, as a ranch kid, you know, you have, you have times to, to sow and times to reap, but, uh, it's never at the same time. You're always looking for the next, uh, the next drought to occur. And you're planning on that and you're, you're, you're planning on, on what the, uh, what things look like. I hate looking at news. I hate looking at politics, but I pay attention to that stuff because I'm looking for the next drought. Yeah. Well, I was always told when I was flying freight and aerial survey, it's like whenever there's an opportunity to make the money, you always need to go make the money because you don't know when that money is not going to be there. And I would say that's great advice. And it's also terrible advice because you need to have some kind of quality life in there and you need to work enough to where you have enough in case something happens, but you also need to take time off where you can enjoy your life and enjoy your kid and all that. So, uh, speaking of horrible about that part, I hear him cry right now. He, if anyone hears him cry, it's not me. He's going down for a nap with my wife. So (laughs) it's not me. I promise. Probably Um, sounds like me in an airplane. (laughs) Yeah, right. <laughs> Doing your instrument rating, that's what it sounded like. Exactly. <laughs> when, um, so yeah, we, we, it's just crazy how the, even from 2014 or 2010 when I started, uh, it was not a good time. Flight instructors were making, I remember my flight instructor is full time. He was making like 10 grand a year, which uh, CFI listening to this right now is like, what? Like I'm making like 60, 70, 80 grand. Like my life's great. I'm going to be a regional captain making 200 grand, like whatever it is. It's like, dude, regional, you, made probably 10 grand as well. Like he was lucky to be making that. A lot of regional pilots are on food stamps. Uh, Why well, I, I hear that. I don't know if that's true, but probably is true. I don't know why they lie about that, but. <laughs> or they feel like they are, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> Either way, not good. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy how it changes. And we seem to be at a high, but you never know. Something could happen tomorrow and could all change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been lucky as a flight instructor. I got into it. I didn't think I was actually going to like being a flight instructor. Um, that's a whole other story on how I got there. But uh, uh, I actually am really interested in that because I never wanted to be a flight instructor. I was working on my instructor rating and I got a job call to go do aerial survey. And I was like, peace, I'm never doing this again. So I would love to hear how you kind of flipped your brain around to be like, all right, I'm actually gonna be a flight instructor. Yeah, so I got into it kind of odd. So, uh, you know, I got my commercial. My commercial was the fastest rating I ever did. It was three days and a check ride. Done. Um, I was working for a company called Trimotor Air Tours at the time, uh, flying right seat in a single pilot airplane, but it was the last version of a Ford Trimotor. Got to deal with that. It was awesome. Um, Unfortunately, some guys flew it when they were told not to go fly it. They crashed it, got to pull both the guys out of the burning airplane. So that was another touch point on how serious this stuff is. that's a whole nother story, but, uh, uh, I was all of a sudden without a job other than my normal day job working on airplanes. I ended up a little bit later, I ended up, uh, getting a phone call kind of, sorry, this is a little bit long, but leads into the CFI side. Um, and it was from the community college, Cypress college that I was, uh, going to Chuck Gifford, who's who ran that program forever. He was semi-retired, but they, he couldn't quite get out of there all the way. And he calls me up one day. He goes, "Hey, do you have a do you have an advanced ground instructor certificate?" I said, "No, but I can get one." And he goes, "Well, how quick can you get one?" I said, "I don't know. Let me grab the man. Let me grab the the glide book, and I'll start studying." And uh, he goes, "Well, what are you doing next Tuesday?" And I said, "Do you want me to take the test then? What What are we talking about?" He goes, "One of the 
one of the, the adjunct guys didn't show up to class. I've been having to fill his class in, but I can't take the whole class. I need somebody else to help. And I said, oh, what class is it? He goes, private pilot. I'm like, great. So I was a nerd I, uh, when it came to aviation. Everything else, like my GPA is like absolute minimal because I got 4.0s and everything aviation, everything else, I barely passed it. Uh, literally, I just didn't have time to deal with busy work in my mind. Um, but I would sit in on that, on all the aviation classes over and over and over again, because I was just, every time I went through it, I'd pick out something else that I didn't know before. And I'm just always intensely curious about anything aviation. So he called, you know, so I said, well, okay, what's going on? He goes, well, I want you to team teach with me this semester. I'm like, okay. He goes, you're probably only going to get one semester because they're trying to close the program, but you at least get a shot. Okay, great. So either way, all of a sudden I knew what I was going to do. I think it was on, it could have been Monday, Wednesdays. It was Tuesday, Thursdays. I can't remember what it was. They're three and a half hour classes. Here I am with a guy that I, to this day, I love the man to death. He, he makes me, I'm nervous anytime I talk in front of him because he's just such a wealth of knowledge. Um, and I go in this class and the Dean at the time really didn't like us. I mean, you could insert eighties, uh, movie here kind of kind of uh uh storyline but he really didn't like the aviation program he had lost some fan, some friends and business partners in an airplane accident yet he's now in charge of the aviation program and he made it clear like we better have some more students or else he's gonna can us and i'm thinking to myself man this is the first time i've actually got you know potential steady income like this would be pretty cool uh i should probably keep this job somehow so i went out and i signed everybody up my sister my mom, my parents' neighbor signed up for the class. I, I signed. I told him like, all you have to do is sit in there through the drop date, and then you can you don't have to show up anymore. Like, I just need people in the seat, and uh, so so I had the place full enough that they didn't cancel the class, and then uh, so then there I am teaching in front of the class, and that was the first time I actually went. Hey, this teaching thing is actually pretty cool. Um, but I had to study hard. I would study everything I, I needed to know for the class. And I'd go in there three hours, four hours before the class. And I would teach the, at, to an empty classroom because my mom's in the seat, Chuck's in the seat and all these other people are watching me. Um, I better actually look like I know what I'm talking about. And <laughs> funny thing is my mom, when it came to drop date, she didn't tell anybody uh, that she was my mom and it came to drop time and she's like, no, I want to sit in here and, and watch and go through the whole class. And so she went through the whole semester with me. That's and, one, yeah, <laughs> and she, she was always quiet about, you know, that she, she'd never tell anybody she was my mom. And then one day I said some story about something that had happened, uh, an emergency I had dealt with. And I could look, I could see the look on my mom's face. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, mom. And I, I let the cat out of the bag that day. Um, but yeah, so the next semester I was like, well, this isn't great. There's a local aviation newspaper, um, called the Pacific flyer. So I put out an ad in the Pacific flyer for that class and I papered all over school, you know, four unit class, all this kind of stuff. And I had the class packed for the next semester. In fact, I got in trouble for spending my own money on advertising because you're not supposed to do that, but I didn't care. I wanted the job. I looked at it as being advertising. Um, so I was doing that for a little bit and then I was working for a company in their aircraft sales and, um, for the CFI specifically, um, I'm not a good salesman, but I love airplanes. 
So they figured out really quickly that I can show somebody how much fun an airplane was. Didn't matter if it was a Baron or a Cessna 152. It was the most fun airplane out there. And, you know, they get done with the flight and then somebody else could actually close the sale. <laughs> These um, are the numbers. Yeah. It's don't fun. ever, yeah. Don't ever ask me to close a sale. I'm just, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy asking for money. Like you don't need a plane. The flying club's right there. You just pay. <laughs> <You're> yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Hey, bad idea owning an airplane. I've owned, yeah. I've Airborne owned some stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I've got this light sport airplane, a little Remos light sport. I just, uh, we were a dealer for a bunch of these different companies and, uh, I get told by the boss, Hey, we got a guy coming in with his wife and their adult son. The guy wants to buy one of these airplanes, but we got to do three demo flights because we got to get everybody on board. Okay, great. So I go out and I fly the, the father, then the son. And then I, I go to fly this, this lady, Carol, we go out, we go flying around and I don't touch the airplane. I just tell her how to fly it. This is how this thing is done. Fly the airplane all around land it and we taxi on in. She goes, Hey, you looking for a flight instructor job? I said, I'm not a flight instructor. She goes, why not? Well, at the time it was really, it was almost impossible to get a check ride done through the FAA. There was the, the FAA locally had pretty much knocked out all the DPEs uh, or taken away the, the, the ability for the DPEs to do the, the CFI check rides. And they're trying to do them all in house through the FAA. And it was like a, I want to say it was like a 12 or 13 month wait list that you were put on to get a check ride. It was super painful. And I told her, I said, you know, I can't get a check ride. Um, and everybody I know, it's a CFI hates it. So why am I going to get myself up to the point where I can get a check ride scheduled and then try to maintain proficiency long enough to do this? I can't afford to do that. And uh, she goes, well, if I can get you a check ride, would you go for it? I said, yeah, sure. Of course. Sure. Like, like, who are you? What's your name? Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, like, yeah, right. This is like uh, May 30th. The next day she calls me up and she goes, well, I got a check right for you. It's on June 25th. I said, like, okay. <laughs> All right. I guess, you know, that's what I get for, for opening my mouth. I said, so who's the check right with? She goes, oh, it's with me. I'm like, oh, okay. So I had 25 days to get prepped for my my CFI check ride. And, uh, it was great. Um, got it knocked out. It was like between work, my two jobs I was working and, um, and everything else. It was like, I was just eat, drink, sleep, live. Cause I still had to get the CFI knowledge test done. Luckily I had the FOI done cause I got my AGI because of the, the school job. Um, luckily I had a lot of experience teaching. So that part wasn't as bad. Uh, so it just, it all worked out. Um, and it was the hottest day. I borrowed a friend of mine's airplane. A guy I'd go flying with, keep him legal, keep him. I was his insurance because he, was, he wasn't able to maintain a medical. And he had a uh, Piper Lance. And at the time, he had to do it in a complex airplane. So I fly this Piper Lance up to Brackett Airport, which is about 20 miles away from where my home base was at the time. And we go, and it's the hottest day of the year. It's like 105 or something on the ramp. <laughs> Always is, yeah. And uh, we go in, I do this six and a half hour oral, just because she had flown with me before didn't, know, didn't mean she was going to, I think actually I probably got more direct questioning because like, hey, let's make sure we don't make this look like, we want to make sure you earn this, and which I appreciated. I, I, I absolutely love her to death. She has become a lifelong friend. She went to my wedding. Um, 
Oh, cool. That's so awesome. I'm actually uh, helping her with her annual on her, her 152 right now. But uh, anyway, we go out there and we go fly the airplane, or we, we do the oral. We go get in the airplane. It's the middle of the heat. Get in the thing, and she gets in the left seat. I get in the right seat. I said, let's go and get this thing fired up. We'll turn on the air conditioning. She's like, she looks at me like, yeah, cruel joke. And I said, no, seriously, this thing's got air conditioning. And I swear it was at that point that I passed the flight portion of the, the check ride. <laughs> <laughs> we get into the flying, um, kind of a funny thing. We go through all the different maneuvers. She, okay, you have a choice on this one. You can either do a Shondell or a Lazy A. I said, take a Lazy A. She goes, no, Daniel, I think you mean a Shondell. I said, no, I mean a Lazy A. She goes, Daniel, I think you mean a Shondell. This is going really well. But okay, fine, I'll do a Shondell. So I do a Shondell. She goes, okay, now you pass the performance part. Show me the Lazy A. And so I showed her the Lazy A. She goes, you know how many people fail on Lazy A's? And that happens to be actually one of my favorite maneuvers ever. And everybody talks down how bad the, the Lazy A is, but it's probably one of, when you get into flying more high-performance airplanes, um, you're getting used to comfortable with an airplane, uh, you're going to get into aileron rolls, aerobatics of any sort. It's, it's a great warm-up maneuver and exercise. That's interesting because I I had more fun doing lazy eights on a Piper Arrow. <laughs> I thought yeah. I was ripping through the sky, you know, two hundred one horsepower. I thought I was freaking rocking it, man. I was ripping that thing around. I called them crazy eights, and it was just a blast. I would, <laughs> but I yeah. mean, I guess it's different for everyone, right? Like I don't know, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, I partly think the way that the FAA explains a lazy eight is so freaking overly complicated um, that it deters from the fun of it. But yeah. that's just me. You thought- Eights on pylons. That was my least favorite one. Hated eights on pylons. Oh, I never really? trusted. I never trusted the point I would pick. I, it was because you know it's all based on what you pick, and if it's too close, too far, you're, you're kind of screwed. So I was like, ah, yeah. yeah, and it changes. Yeah, changes airplane to airplane pretty quickly. Yeah, I was like, oh, cool. Eights on pylons were fun for me because it was an opportunity to get close to the ground. And um, by that point in time, I was already playing with air show stuff. So oh, this isn't that bad. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about that. As, you, uh, as you're as you making your progress through uh, your career, like we know now, how you became a CFI, past checkride, um, and how did you kind of follow down the warbird path? Like you mentioned before, you had an idea that's what you wanted to do uh, since the military wasn't going to work out. But talk a little about getting into warbirds, flying warbirds, being safe in warbirds, and all around. So, yeah, so it kind of started off with along the lines of working on my private ticket, getting a job, pumping gas, and then that turned into working in the shop. Then I got hired by another uh, shop um, as a full-time apprentice mechanic. The guy that was in that shop was completely, who ended up becoming my flight instructor on my instrument rating, was completely burnt out on flying. So we were doing a lot of heavy maintenance, a lot of repairs and stuff like that. So an airplane would get out of the shop, and would have to get a test flight done on it. Um, this was a period of time that insurance was extremely tight, almost impossible. Um, but the shop had really good insurance and the guy who was supposed to do all the, the return to service flying was completely burnt out. So I got to go on all the, I got to actually do all the flying with him in the right seat um, during all that return to service flying. So I got the opportunity to fly a huge cross section of general aviation airplanes Um to the point, like the first time I ever flew a Mooney was by myself. I ended up actually having an engine failure on that, that flight, but, uh, <laughs> breaking in a brand new I engine. Did. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I crossed a hundred hours on that flight. Um, but you know, I was like, I love it. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I, I don't, I don't ferry airplanes at night. A day VFR only is how I ferry airplanes. If I'm going to do an engine break-in or a test flight, it has to be day good VFR. Um, and a lot of it stems from that one. It was, we are pushed to get the, the thing flying and ended up going flying at night and had an engine, sucked a couple valves on the engine. So anyway, kind of long Did story on that. Airport? Did you get it back yeah. to the airport? Yeah, I, I got it, dude. Um, that was one of those going back to private pilot ground school. I remember Chuck Gifford saying, you know, um, he says there's a light bulb effect. Like if you, if you leave a light bulb running, it's always, it's going to probably run for a long time. Time that it fails is when you make a change in current. And if you ever have a bad problem, don't touch anything until you're in a spot where you can get yourself to a better solution. And so this thing was running like junk. And uh, I remember that just before. Yeah, I, I looked at everything. I was going to, you know, the first thing is you want to do something. And I went, no, no. And I pitched up, got to a spot and Fullerton Airport's 3,100 feet. That was the closest place I could go. And I remember <laughs> looking at that runway going, yeah, I think I can make it from here. And I brought the throttle back a little bit. It starts running just absolutely horribly. It just fails completely. But okay. And so I glided it on in and, you know, by the grace of God, touched down, rolled off the end of the runway. Life was good. Didn't damage anything. Um, super lucky. I mean, that was like, that wasn't me. That was, you know, I just was really lucky. And I, I didn't, uh, you know, I stayed with the airplane uh, mentally and emotionally. When I got out of the airplane, that was a whole other subject. I had that moment of, you know, walk over to the side of the airplane, puke my guts out, going, wow, it could have gotten really bad. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so anyway, so kind of back to into the warbirds, like um, that led into when that guy brought that trimotor here on the field or over to Fullerton Airport at the time. Um, I had, I did something dumb when I was working on my instrument rating. And there was one of the guys in the shop. Had a, like that. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, one of the guys in the shop had a Cessna 150 that had been sitting for about 10 years, um, had some pretty nasty damage to it. And he worked out a payment program for me to buy it. Um, it was a win-win. He got it off his hands and he got more money and, uh, I became the miserable owner of it. Um, I ended up rebuilding that airplane. Um, and then one day I'm in my hangar, uh, working on the airplane. This guy comes in, he goes, Hey, uh, your boss, or he goes, Hey, uh, I'm looking for, uh, somebody who's mechanic. I said, well, I'm just an apprentice mechanic. I don't work for anybody other shop. And, uh, he goes, well, your boss said I should talk to you. And I said, okay. Um, yeah, but I really don't work for anybody other than that. I mean, I'm not an A and P. Um, and he goes, well, I am. He goes, I have an airplane that I need help with. And I'm like, I, you know, that, that was always like the danger sign, you know, cause everybody wants you to work on their airplane and, and I'm not an AMP. I don't want to deal with it. I, I'm just lucky. I don't want to screw up this job I have. Life is good. Um, you know, I'm making forward progress. And he goes, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to fly warbirds. He goes, well, I don't have a warbird, but I got an airplane with three, three radial engines on a tailwheel. And all of a sudden I know like, Oh, it's that airplane. He goes, if you help me work on it, I'll teach you how to fly it. I went, I'm in. So, then again, that was the catalyst to getting my instrument, getting my instrument rating done. I'd go out there and I'd work on the airplane, help them out, wash it, clean it, get it prepped, get it staged. And the airplane was a single pilot airplane, but we'd go out, we'd do rides, and I'd do most of the rides because, you know, we do 25, 26 rides a day in the thing. And so um, it got me a lot of a lot of good experience. And the guy was a phenomenal instructor. Um, I 
I emulate a lot. I, I kind of channel my my inner bud on a lot of things when uh, when I'm having challenges with students. Think like, a, you know, how did he get me past this hurdle? Um, he was really cool. He said, hey, you know, this is a single pilot airplane. A lot of people want to fly this thing. Um, if somebody is wants to fly it, they've got an airplane, trade them seat time. So I would, you know, first time I flew a Beach uh, 18 was – Gave the guy a uh, right seat in the tri-motor, and I went out and flew the Beach 18 uh, with, you know, with him in the seat. T6, Stearman, uh, actually Stearman, I got a little bit before that. Pitts, you know, just go down the list of all these more exotic airplanes. And you get to know people and build those relationships. Um, like I said, unfortunately, that that job ended tragically. Uh, nobody died in the wreckage, but, uh, you know, lives were forever changed. Um, one of the guys, uh, one of the guys was really hurt really badly. He ended up dying 17 later, 17 years later, almost to the day of the wounds that he suffered that day. Um, so anyway, um, but I had already made all these connections, but I thought when that airplane wrecked, I thought now I've got the scarlet letter on my chest. Nobody's going to want to touch me because I was associated with that, with that group. Um, and I kind of, fell back and honestly it was pretty it was a huge blow i mean um i questioned whether or not i wanted to carry on with flying um pulling two of your friends out of an airplane well you know this on fire is not the most fun thing in the world um it was a lot of things that were going on in that there's a pretty it's a pretty rough uh period of time i was 24 years old i think it was uh 24 25 in that, that period of time and it was, it was pretty rough. And I grew up, you know, kind of thinking also, um, you know, there's a lot of kids around, around where I grew up, they didn't make it to 25. For some reason, that was a number in my head that I'm not going to live past that point. So um, when I hit 25, it was kind of a big changer. Like I, I had a, my, my midlife crisis at 25 years old, went, well, shoot, you know, all these things I didn't do, they'll be doubled down on them. And uh <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, it got actually gave me a, a new kick in the butt, and I just started pursuing after things harder and harder. Uh, there, it's a challenging thing. The warbirds were always something that just absolutely no, you can't do. I was told so many times, you can't do it. You're not a guy that grew up doing this. You didn't come from the right family, the kind of thing. Um, those doors were slammed in my face all the time. Um, the tri-motor gave me help, hope, um, and it gave me help too. Um, but without that ride, I didn't really have the bargaining material to kind of get myself to that next step. And at least in Southern California at the time, it was like, it was kind of a closed, uh, industry and I just didn't know how. Um, so there's a couple of years there that I just lost traction completely, um, and then came the time that I got my CFI and because <laughs> kind of a funny thing, as I flew with everybody on the airport and a couple other airports around, um, anytime somebody would buy a brand new airplane, I'd give the flight instructor a checkout in the airplane so they could check out their new student. <laughs> so I had kind of a, a neat little thing. I didn't realize how valuable that was until I got my CFI. Once I got my CFI, I figured out there's like one flight school that dealt with tailwheel training in the local area and they did table training to get people to do aerobatics. And there was nobody that really focused on core tailwheel training. And so, um, 
all of a sudden, you know, folks, you know, one guy popped up and he goes, Hey, I bought a champ and I need somebody to teach me how to fly in it. So I started teaching him how to fly and I started getting all these other people to a point where I thought, well, shoot, I think there's a business model here. And, um, <laughs> I can I, make money doing this. <laughs> yeah. And I just sold my little Cessna 150. I don't know. I sold it at bare bark, bare bones. I lost probably like $30,000 on it. I used to joke that was my college education, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, um, well, you said I, you weren't a good salesman, so. <laughs> oh, I was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Um, so I was just more happy to get rid of it at that point. Yeah. And I thought, I'm never going to own an airplane again, all this kind of stuff. And uh, then it was like, well, uh, as a flight instructor on the field at Fullerton, the airport manager at the time, he made everybody get a business license and all these other things. And, you know, you had to operate it like you're operating a regular flight school. And, uh, well, shoot, I'm already doing all that much work. I might as well buy an airplane and... Uh, you know, just double down. So I buried, borrowed, and stole. I figured out, thank God, um, for people that believed in me. Um, I developed a business plan. I bought a Cessna 170, which I still own to this day. And I set out doing table training. And I thought, you know what? I may never be able to buy the Corsair that I want. But if I could teach a guy how to fly, if I could teach a guy how to do tailwheel flying, and I can grow him up to that point, he might let me fly the airplane. So that was kind of the next generation of, of building up some hope in there. And um, so I was flying for two different flight schools. I bought the 170 and started doing table training. I was told by all the old timers on the field, literally came up. There was about eight of them came up and saw me at my airplane and told me I was going to wreck the airplane within three weeks. Again, I'm like, well, that says, says you, let me just make sure now this is a challenge. <laughs> now it's not a challenge that I'm going to take lightly because I respected these guys. Um, I'd flown around a lot of them a, a lot. I, I really, um, I looked to them as being, uh, you know, they're all people I just respected. And uh, I thought, well, all right, I'll take that as a warning. And I'm just going to develop the cleanest way I can do this. And my personal standards are going to go up and my personal uh, minimums are going to go up. And uh, here we are. I've got 2,200 hours in that airplane and knock on wood. Um, it's been 2,200 hours of, of good flying. Great, um, great times with a lot of students. 17 years now that I've been doing it. Uh, I'm no longer doing table instruction with that airplane right now. It's, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been great. And that ended up growing into, I got a guy that was, taking a flight review with me hadn't been flying for years he decided he wanted to buy a great lakes biplane he bought the great lakes and he decided that he wanted to lease it back for tax reasons i kept telling him this is a bad idea you're never going to make any money but all of a sudden i had you know two airplanes and then i had a hangar and then uh one of my students i did this private pilot certificate for i was out flying a t6 uh with a museum at the time and uh he said uh you know i bet you there's a market to do table or to do t6 instruction you and I should be partners. I'm like, dude, I don't, I'm trying to pay this 170 off. I can't even think about a T6. He goes, well, we'll be partners. Um, I'll buy the airplane. You can buy you can buy yourself into it by working into it. So we bought the T6, and next thing you know, I'm flying a T6 three and four hours a day, losing my hearing. You know, and then that turned into <laughs> yeah, exactly. That turned into another guy who flew the T6 with me, and he goes, hey, I'm thinking about. I'd love to buy a T6, but what if we bought, what if I bought a Stearman and I leased it back to you? So then all of a sudden we got, you know, 170 Great Lakes, 
T6 Stearman, and then, you know, get a, a, a Satabri in the school. And then my T6 uh, partner decides, hey, we really need to get a DC3. And I'm like, that's a horrible idea. Like, he, we were doing a ride program with the T6 as well as doing training. He's like, well, we can only take one person at a time. We could take 19 people in the DC3. I'm like, but we're not set up for that. He and I argued back and forth. You know, it was almost like a marriage because we argued a lot. And then in the end, we 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 settled and he won. Um, so we ended up getting the DC3. And that turned into three years of just absolute nightmares in my life. I, I, I hated the airplane. Um, I, I, I'm surprised I don't have ulcers from that particular airplane. There, there's so many. Uh, my first eight hours in that airplane, I think I declared an emergency every flight. Uh, yeah, we finally got the airplane right. Started, you know, it, it became something really great. Um, so it just kind of grew and exploded from there. Um, I started flying the Commander Air Forces Wildcat somewhere in that period of time. Uh, yeah, and then I was instructing in every every make and model of uh, Warbird trainer along the way, and uh, it, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. Ended up moving from Fullerton up to to Cable Airport, which I love Cable Airport. It's a um, I'll give a little. If, if you love aviation, if you love old school aviation, come out to Cable Airport. It's one of the very few places that you can still go to. And there's like this little stub wall around the cafe to go onto the ramp of the field. It's, it's, it's much, it feels a lot like a pre 9-11 airport. And yeah, it's awesome. They've got a little, um, they've got a little viewing area on the approach end of the runway that's open to the public. It's a little picnic ground. You'll be flying in. You'll see people out there with their kids and it's it's just awesome. I love this place. And so I ended up growing, uh, growing the business, moving it up here, um, 3,100 feet at, at Fullerton Airport in the middle of the city. I was just outgrowing it. Um, so anyway, um, came up here, started growing some even more. Um, then got to the point we, we ended up having an issue with with our T6. Uh, one of pilots that we let fly it, he, he had a bad day with it. And, um, kind of changed into a whole nother cycle um, partnership that I had in the T6 and the DC3. It kind of run its course. It was time to move on from that. So ended up getting three little Varga Kachinas and we started doing a formation training uh, thing here. Cause I was like, I was kind of at the point um, the, the, the T6, I love the T6 to me. It's like putting on an old pair of tennis shoes. I know exactly how it fits, how it flies. And, uh, but at the same time, I was I was exhausted. I was burnt out. I was like, you know, I can only do so much of this because if I'm not flying it, I'm working on it. You know, it's just trying to keep up the pit, the tempo and the pace and trying to get somebody to replace me was becoming impossible. I, was, I, I wasn't able to grow. So, well, I can go and buy a T6 or I can buy three of these Varga Kachinas and maybe develop some Warbird fun on a 172 budget level. And that's what I did. And it was so much fun because we got all these folks that were like me who wanted to do the Warbird thing, wanted to do the air show thing, um, but had no access to it. Now all of a sudden we can bring them in, teach them how to fly formation safely because they're going to do it anyway. I used to jokingly say we, we, we have the hardcore, you're going to learn how to fly formation for air show to get a fast card uh, type of training. And we also have the sex ed of, of formation. You're going to do it anyway. Let's make sure that you do it safely. Don't kill anybody in the process. And uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, we did that for a number of years until during COVID, 
uh, I was completely burnt out on, on trying to keep everything up and then everything changing so quickly. And I had an opportunity that somebody wanted to buy my business and I sold them most of my business. And the idea was they were going to buy the business. They're going to grow the business fairly locally. They've been funded a lot of money and I was going to come in. All I had to do is be the chief pilot. And I'm like, sign me up. Um, yeah, please. Yeah. Like, Let me go. <laughs> take a paycheck. <laughs> Dude, that'd be awesome. I don't know what a paycheck is. Um, I was going to say, it sounds like all you've ever wanted is a consistent paycheck your whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I don't know what one of those are, but uh, yeah, so I I, I sold everything off and, or I sold most of it off. I kept the 170 and, and, and they didn't open their doors. They're still talking about it. They're, they, you know, things change on their plan. So, um, I kind of found that out rudely. I was supposed to find, I was supposed to start flying for them uh, at one point on this specific date. And they kept pushing it back, pushing it back. And they finally told me that it's probably going to be two or three years before they opened up and in business. I, I've done, done enough business to know that two or three years means never. So I quickly sent out a text message to a few of my friends and said, Hey, it looks like I'm a free agent. I got nothing better to do. Do you, do you guys need anybody? And, um, Two weeks later, I went on the road on my first trip. And that year, between March and the end of October, I was in my own bed 21 nights. And seven of those was because I had a sinus infection and I couldn't I couldn't fly airplanes at Oshkosh for somebody. So and it's just been, you know, it's just been always a transition of, of things. And uh doing the warbirds or doing the doing the flight training with all that stuff opened up all these different airplanes I can fly. All of a sudden people saw that, hey, Daniel is comfortable enough to fly it. He's comfortable enough to instruct in it. And he's got his own skin in the game. We can trust him. So, um, meanwhile, you know, I'm late twenties and early thirties through that process. And so there's still a little bit of having to make sure that I, I keep myself in check and keep earning people's respect and stuff. So, you know, yeah. So that all just kind of ended up growing and, and, uh, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a great ride. What's really interesting is even how you tell the story, um, you, you tell it in a way uh, so people understand like, yeah, like I'm here, I'm flying all these war warbirds, I have all this opportunity, but it wasn't always like that, right? Like it was, it was a lot of hard work in the background or uh, before this happened. And then being a good person, putting myself in the right position, creating my own luck, and then things just start snowballing. You, you meet the one person and you meet the next person. It just kind of snowballs off that. And that's based off the hard work you did, you being a good person and you just being there like so much of it is just being there you don't even know how i mean it doesn't happen all the time but just literally being at an airport and being like i like planes someone be like oh i got a plane and it's like oh they got a p51 like you don't know what the plane's gonna be it could be a 172 could be p51 could be a ford tri-motor <laughs> of like you never know and and what you could get and find yourself in it's just literally just showing up and just being there uh, and being a somewhat decent person, you just have to don't be too annoying, right? There's fine line. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, there's that old adage, that old saying that uh, luck is proper preparation meets opportunity. And over and over and over again, that's been proven to be in my life. I've got, I've always got a stack of manuals that I'm studying because, and right now I've got an opportunity to fly. I'm not going to say what I have opportunities to fly coming up here soon because I don't want to jinx it. Uh, Cause I don't count any of that stuff until it's in my logbook, but uh, you know, through all that stuff and just trying to be a decent human being, treat other people the way I want to be treated. Um, you know, I, I see all too often people focus on the money, uh, getting a paycheck or whatever. 
Um, every time I've ever concentrated on the money side of business uh, or the money side of aviation, I've always struggled. When I concentrate on the people, all of a sudden the doors open up. Um, the money flows, everything is okay. Uh, and so I, I don't care, you know, it kind of gets back to, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated. And I end up dealing with some fairly well-to-do people. And I see so many times where they just get milked on stuff and they get beat up and they're, they're, they're not where they want to be on their flying side because people took advantage or wanted to take advantage of them because of their, their financial ability. And it's like, well, I, the airplane doesn't care how many zeros in your bank account, how many commas in your bank account. All it cares about is how well you do your job in the moment you do it. You know, it, so that's what I'm doing is I'm teaching you how to be a pilot and then hopefully encouraging you to be a, a, a lifetime learner. And, um, you know, I've got one of the guys that I fly with who's become just an absolutely great friend. First time I flew with him, um, we flew first day, we're T6s, wearing flight suits, and he spilled something on his flight suit. Next day he comes in, he's wearing another flight suit, and he's got four stars on his shoulder. And I said, hey, Ray, um, you know, uh, I know you went down to the Goodwill and bought the flight suit and all, but if you're going to do that, just pro tip, just take off the rank off your shoulders. And, and if you don't, you might be able to get away with captain, major, maybe lieutenant colonel, but, you know, four stars, that kind of looks a little, a little bad. And he looks at me, he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, and he goes, Oh, you didn't know that was my last job. I retired as a four-star general in the air force. I'm like, Oh, cool. He goes, uh, is that going to affect my, my pilot training? He said, Oh heck yeah, it is. Cause now I know all you can do is fly a desk. And at that point in time, we became friends and you know, we are now just, uh, just, it turns out he was the guy, he was one of the guys that did all the flight test work on, on the 747s became air force one had an amazing career did all these great things you know it, it, you just never know who you're going to fly with um now today i've learned over the years i never look up anybody i never go on google and search per person's name before i go fly with them because i don't want to know what they did before they they met me my job is to meet them where they're at and then move yeah. them forward so yep. i love that it's a good way to look at it yeah, man. What uh, we got a couple more questions. I know we're yeah, running, we're running a little bit over. Uh, one, you told me there's a Mexico story, and I need to hear a quick version of a oh, Mexico story. Well, not so much a Mexico story, but you know, looking around, wondering if you are in Mexico, and um, so, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to tell this properly um, for our YouTube channel that I started up, um, because I think I think it's one that people kind of need to to understand that you don't just wind up where you're at. Um, so I was go. I was flying just after I got my private pilot certificate. So this has got to be 2000. Um, I'm on the Cypress College flying team. We're competing against Mount Sac and Embry Riddle and Air Force Academy and all these other colleges. We're out in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Williams Gateway. Um, shortly after it had been closed from the airport Air Force Base, and I'm in this little 152. I learned a lot of things this weekend. We pushed weather. We pushed distances. We pushed all these things. Well, now we're doing a navigation competition and it's uh, myself and my navigator and we're both pretty fresh private pilot students. And at the time they'd cover up your VORs and ADF because that's what we had in this little 152. Um, There's no GPS, anything like that. You sat down, you wrote out your whole flight plan. They gave you your winds and stuff like that. And if I remember right, we had to stay at, a, you know, right around a thousand feet AGL. And so is low altitude navigation. We go out 
and we make like the first turn okay and we're on time we make the second turn and i think we messed up on the second turn and by the time we got to the third turn we were now really questioning everything and all of a sudden every nothing is looking right and for the next probably felt like three days but it was probably you know 45 minutes we're out there trying to figure out where we are and to quote john king I knew exactly where I was. I was in the left seat of a Cessna 152. Where that 152 was, I had no idea. And <laughs> you start looking around, you're like, well, we better start turning north now because I, this could be Arizona or this could be coming up on Mexico. <laughs> and uh, finally, we work ourselves back. And um, I absolutely embarrassing. You know, you show up there and um, first of all, nobody expects a whole lot of you being the, the underdog team, but we landed there. We got disqualified, obviously. Um, we got some safety stuff, obviously. Um, you know, we had a story to tell. I'm absolutely embarrassed. I'm like, this is this is horrible. Um, I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to do this again. The next year, I had prepped for it so well that I ended up getting first place on it because I wasn't going to be that guy anymore. Um, so, yeah, you know, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a funny deal. You know, you just kind of I, – I don't do Mexico. As a pilot, I grew up on the border. Um, it wasn't wasn't super fun. Um, things that would happen down there at the time. So <laughs> I'll do it on vacation, but not as a pilot. <laughs> um, another question I got for you is: You sound like a guy that's had a lot of stuff happen when you're flying, whether it's emergencies or just crazy stuff. What's the the one emergency that maybe like you're like, Oof, that was bad? Um, I don't know. There's a uh... You're like, there's, there's so many. I, yeah, you know, I wasn't the smartest kid. You know, I, I, I did so many um, so many of those maintenance flights. Uh, the first one that I told you, that was one of my first big emergencies. And I, I look back at that and go, wow, that could have been really bad. Um, one that I did, I didn't perform as properly as I probably should have now that I know everything. Um yeah, that one wasn't actually, now that I think about it, it's, you know, it's hard to second guess yourself at the end of the day. And I do that a lot. It's just, you have a bad day, you have a good day, I second guess myself um, on a bad, you know, I'm always trying to analyze that. Um, one that could have been kind of nasty. Um, we took off in the DC-3, so I was pretty early on, I was working on my type rating. We take off, we have a gear out abnormality and i still to this day have no idea how this happened because the system on the airplane is relatively simple um anyway the gear gets stuck in transit and uh we got a few people in the back because you know the my partner in the airplane wanted to go for a ride stuff like that so we we go off um we're climbing out gears stuck in transit it's not locking down it's not locking up it's just somewhere out there and um I've got my instructor in the right seat. He's kind of working that out. And as he's working that out, I look over and I see a little pressure gauge flicker. I go, ooh, hopefully that's just a gauge. Yeah. So there, there's the first guy who, uh, who did any training with me in the DC-3 told me, he goes, Daniel, you always have to be ready for an engine failure because in a DC-3, it's not a matter of if you're going to have an engine failure. It's just when. And uh, so I'm like, okay, so let's watch this. Having a mechanical background really was helpful. And uh, I thought to myself really quick, do, do I tell the guy over here on the right seat that we have this? 
and I'm looking at how intently he's looking at that gear system, trying to figure it out. And I can kind of see the worry on his face. I'm like, yeah, if I give him any more than this, it's probably going to overload him. And so I'm watching this and it starts ticking more and more. And he goes, Hey, just go ahead and press out, you know, to Lake Matthews, which was 15 miles away. Uh, no, no, I'm just going to tell the tower. We're just going to orbit here. And he goes, well, you want the gear up or you want the gear down? I said, well, I'll take either up or down. I don't care. Whichever one you can give me. So, okay, well, I'll make, let's try for down. Then we'll figure out what it is. Said, that sounds like a great idea. And, uh, <laughs> and he's finally, he gets the gear down. And by this point in time, the air, oil pressure gauge is ticking lower and lower. And the oil temperature gauge is getting higher and higher. And like, okay, yeah, we're just about to, we're just about to have a really bad day with that engine. And he sits down in the seat and starts to belt in. I said, you know, Chino Tower, 4-3 X-ray, X-ray. We're, uh, we're south of the field, inbound, declaring mercy, six souls on board, four hours of gas, we'll be single engine. And he looks at me like, holy crap, and I pointed the gauge. <laughs> I said, let's go ahead and secure number one. And so we shut it down. And it was just one of those, like, you just don't know. I mean, it's, it's a war story. I don't mean to make it sound like I did everything great, because I'll tell you, I, at the time, I was second-guessing everything. We taxi in. Is it glad you didn't tell him? Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, so he was funny. He was a instructor for United on the 7-4 and the debrief. I said, he, you know, was I right? Was I wrong? He goes, no, he goes, here's the deal. We always train one emergency, but in these airplanes, there's typically, there can be a cascading effect. Um, he goes, I want to know why you, why you didn't tell me. I said, well, because I really need you to concentrate all your energy on that and not be distracted. He goes, yeah, because I think if I would have been distracted, it would have slowed me down. So, um, you know, so it's kind of gets back to that prioritizing things. Um, I'm trying to think. I've, I've always had, I've, I've had some stupid things, pilot-induced issues. <laughs> so, um, no, other than that, I think that was kind of one of the, one of the more fun ones. I had an engine fire on landing. <laughs> you know. yeah, at least it was on landing. Yeah, yeah. get out. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah, evacuated people on the runway. Had to call my wife. Yeah. She was at work. She works at a hospital. And oh, wow. Had to tell her, hey, if you go to a patient's room and you see our airplane on, on TV, yes, that is us. Yes, everybody's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm fine. I promise. I promise. <laughs> All right. I have a couple rapid fire questions for you. Okay. I want to caveat this with, I just got a low battery uh, notification on my computer. So apparently it might die. So if I click out somewhere, it's not because I hung up on you, but no let's try to get this done as fast as possible. Don't explain anything too much. Here we go. You ready? Yep. Favorite airplane you've ever flown. Oh, wow. T6. Ugliest airplane you've ever seen. The Australian sky truck, but I still want to fly it. <laughs> something you wish you knew before you became a pilot that I wouldn't be rich <laughs> amen <laughs> who in the industry would you like to meet most could be alive or could have died Jimmy Doolittle what's your favorite overall thing about aviation the people hardest fight you've ever flown um really bad weather up to Reno in a DC-3 it sounds like you need to avoid DC-3s. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. It's the second yeah. highest time I have on an airplane. <laughs> I, don't believe, I don't believe you. <laughs> What's your favorite flight you've ever flown? Um, taking my mom for her first flight. Least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Reno. Favorite airport you've ever landed at? cable because i'm usually home 
Yeah. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the city? Beaches. Uh, Airbus or Boeing, if you have to choose. Man, that's that's a hard one. I guess Airbus right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, long trips or short trips? And I mean the longest flight you could possibly, possibly fly or the shortest amount of, or the most touch and goes you could do in a day or the oh, shortest hops. Oh, short. Yeah, short and touch and goes. Hardest check ride you ever took? My ATP in the three. Biggest regret of your career, if you have one. Not pushing harder sooner. Biggest win of your career. Gosh, that one's a hard one. So many things. Probably the CFI because it opened so many doors. Yeah. There you go. Well, hey, that's all I got for you, man. My last thing is uh, as we see a new generation come up, uh, they're seeing all the cool things you've flown. Someone wants to get into Warbirds. What's some some, uh, quick advice you'd give someone about uh, following your path? Study hard. Prepare often. No, it's not going to be easy, but nothing worth doing is easy. I love it. All right, Daniel, appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. And uh, this actually will be coming out in a couple of days, so it'll be out on Tuesday. Awesome. Great. Hey, and I'm going to throw a quick plug in there. If anybody wants to, if you're a YouTube type, uh, check out Airspeed and Altitude. We're a brand new channel. And uh, there you go. Yeah, it's not where it is, where it needs to be yet, but we're working on it. So come along for some fun. I love it, man. Sweet. I'll go subscribe, follow, whatever you need to do. All right. Thanks. <laughs> all right, man. I appreciate it. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, man. See ya. Aviation, that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to it. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Like I said, I do have 77, but you know, a thousand won't be too bad too. So let's go ahead and leave some more reviews. I appreciate that, guys. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking with Daniel. Warbirds are pretty cool. Uh, something I've never had the, the occasion to fly. and something I'm always jealous of. So Everyone listen to this and goes fly a warbird because it'd be sweet. But Aviation, that's all I got for you today. And as always, happy flying. Pilot Pilot LLC is compensated to make recommendations to his or her followers regarding the services of RAA or Allworth Airline Advisors, companies of Allworth Financial, LP, or Allworth. Promoter is not an employee or investment advisor representative of Allworth. Promoter is a current client of Allworth. Allworth-based promoter fee of $4,000 a month for sponsorship of the Pilot Pilot podcast. Due to the compensation arrangement between Allworth and Promoter, Promoter has an incentive to recommend Allworth resulting in a material conflict of interest. Promoter's role on behalf of Allworth is limited strictly to making recommendations regarding the services of Allworth, introducing or referring prospective clients to Allworth. Promoter has no responsibility with respect to Allworth's investment advisor or other advisory services.